The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hey, everybody, I'm Mark Lamont Hill. I am the owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books, and I am a professor, a scholar, and most importantly, a book nerd. I say book nerd because I don't just love to read books. I'm the guy who loves to read about the book. I love hearing authors talk about how and why they wrote the book, and I love talking to other book nerds about their favorite books. That's why I started Coffee and Books. It's a podcast all about books. Every episode, I sit down over a cup of coffee with the world's biggest authors to discuss the most interesting, controversial, fun, or important books. Sometimes, I'll hang out with experts, fans, and other special guests to talk about some of the greatest books of all time. And today, I am so happy to be joined by Robin DiAngelo. She is the author of the best-selling book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. Robin, so good to see you. Oh, I'm just thrilled to be here talking to you about books. Yay! I know. (laughs) So, Robin, at the beginning of every show, I, of course, let people know what coffee I'm drinking. And today, in honor of you, I am drinking a flat white. A flat flat white (laughs) is the coffee drink. It's really espresso, but with microfoam on top. And because we're talking about white fragility and microaggressions, I thought that I'd have a drink that centered whiteness. That is excellent. Are you a coffee Um, drinker? I am definitely a coffee drinker. I like a dark roast and I do kind of 50-50, like 50% coffee, 50% vanilla soy milk. Wow. That's good and tasty. Yeah. And that's it. Like, and when I travel, I bring a portable electric tea kettle. And I make it in my hotel room because I, I got to have that good coffee. And you don't know what you're going to get. So I, I'm definitely like, like my coffee just that way. If you bring your own equipment, you're pretty serious about this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I also make cannabis simple syrup. Oh, really? Can you send me that recipe? <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's really good in like a lemon drop martini and you get a nice body buzz off of it. You can put it in tea. Cannabis simple syrup in a martini sounds like the greatest thing I've ever had in my life. In fact, I may do the next episode with that recipe in my cup. Wow. And it's legal where I live, so no big deal. Right. And it is in my undisclosed location as well. Okay. So Robin, books are a fun topic. And I think the thing that's so exciting to me about this moment in the book industry is that there are so many books about race, about racism, that people are actually buying. From the moment that George Floyd was killed until maybe a month ago, my own bookstore, our top five books were all race books. You and Ibram Kendi were right at the top of the list. Why do you think it's so important for people to read about race now? Well, well, I think we should be reading about race all along, and we are not educated on racism. And white people in particular are not educated on racism and aren't particularly motivated to get that education themselves. So you can get a graduate degree in this country, as I think you know. You can be certified as highly educated by our institutions of higher learning. You can be seen as qualified to practice law and teach in public schools and have never discussed systemic racism. So it's always important, but in this particular moment, I think there's a few key things. One, 
we are so done with the post-racial narrative that we were up against during the Obama years. Right. It was harder to do this work at that time. When you say the post-racial narrative, you mean the idea? The narrative. This idea that we're post-racial because we had a, a black president. That's what we were up against during his presidency. But it is so clear that we are not post-racial. In fact, Obama's presidency gave systemic racism a huge infusion of legitimacy. Mm. And I think that it it tapped into that resentment that roils just under the surface of of most white people. I'm I'm just going to say it. Anti-blackness is really deep in the culture and in most white people. You really can't miss internalizing that. So it's kind of exploded at this point, right? You have the particular people in power that we have, right? At the highest levels of government, we have, I would call explicit avowed racists. You have white nationalism on the rise. You had neo-Nazis give a Nazi salute upon the inauguration of our current president. I mean, all of these things are going on. And then you have videos, finally, that can prove what you've been saying for decades, if not centuries, but white folks haven't believed you because it doesn't happen to us. I don't think we're seeing more violence against black people, but we have proof now that it happens. And I just think the concentration of that proof particularly the George Floyd video, the same week that we had Amy Cooper, and then shortly after Breonna Taylor, you put all those things together and it kind of ripped the scales off white America's eyes, I think. Wow. So there's a need to write about race and racism. As you said, we need to be more literate on the subject. We need to develop deeper knowledge on this subject. Your approach to that was to write a book specifically to white people. Why write a book specifically to white people? Well, I think white people are the problem in the sense of the weight of responsibility is on our shoulders. And we kind of have to back up a little bit and do some quick definitions, right? Everybody has bias, and in this case, racial bias. But when one group's racial bias is backed with legal authority and institutional control, it is transformed. And white people's racial bias is backed with legal authority and institutional control. So we wield this system. We sit at the tables where decisions are made that affect the lives of people who aren't at those tables. And as long as we offload both the tensions and the responsibility of racism onto people of color, we're going to protect the status quo as we see, you know, here we are in 2020. We said we were post-racial after the civil rights movement. Then we said we were post-racial after Obama. and, And here we are. In so many ways, it feels like culturally we're pre-civil rights movement, Hmm. right? We've got voter suppression. We've got the uh, Voting Rights Act almost dismantled. And so we've been missing from this conversation. White people are not innocent of race, although I was raised to see myself as innocent of race, right? I mean, I just didn't see myself in racial terms. White people generally are not taught to see ourselves in racial terms. So we understand that somebody has race, of course, but not us. So if we're going to talk about race, we're going to talk about your race and we're going to listen to you uh, and and then unfortunately determine whether we think what you have to say is legitimate or not, feeling that we're qualified to make that determination. But that, that just has to change. And as an insider to whiteness, there is a take I have that you can't have. 
you know, I want to be really clear that I, I could never articulate what I can at this point if I hadn't been mentored and hadn't been educated by the work of Black and other writers. But there is an angle we have, and it's harder to deny. It's a kind of almost a wink-wink, a kind of, hey, you know, and I know, we know. We don't admit this stuff, but we do know it. And I can name it in a way that is harder to deny. It kind of sets up the master's tools dilemma a little bit, right? Actually, there's two questions I want to ask you about what you just said. The first thing is, you talk about how America keeps wrongly thinking that it's in a post-racial moment, right? That we're in a moment where race is where we're colorblind, where race is no longer something that we think and talk about. The question, though, is, for me, it's not just that we're not in a post-racial moment. I guess the question for me is, do we want to be in a post-racial moment? Is that the goal? Should we want to be in a moment where we're post-racial? It's a great question. Well, one, racism isn't going to end in my lifetime. And I don't even know that we know what it would look like to be beyond race. Who said that until you take an accounting of race, you can't move beyond race? That might have been Eddie Glaude, yeah. Okay, so do we want to be? Not until we actually are, if that makes sense. Yeah. And of course, colorblind is like, let's pretend we are, and in so doing, protect the status quo. The colorblind narrative for me is very frustrating. It's always been when white people say it, because it's almost as if they're saying that the only way they can keep track of my humanity is to not see my blackness, right? Like, yeah. like, like, oh, yeah, I don't see your race. You're just Mark. Okay, cool. I want you to be able to see my race and still think that Mark's a cool person and a human being. And so yeah. for me, the distinction has always been about saying, I don't want to be post-racial, but I do want to be, as you pointed out, post-racist. And so seeing uh-huh. race isn't the problem. It's all the, like you said, the power of law and all the things that come behind particular racial identities. And that's why you taking on whiteness is so powerful. What's interesting to me One of the things you take up in the book is this idea of identity politics. The right has turned that word into an evil word. It's like they're just involved in identity politics. Identity politics is destroying America. The left is is using identity politics to destroy the nation, to divide the nation. What are these identity politics that have become the boogeyman? And in the book, you get at this. How is an engagement with identity politics, in your estimation, useful? Yeah, I mean, the racist status quo is fiercely protected. It has been for... Uh, several hundred years, and it will be fiercely protected. And so who does it serve not to acknowledge the impact of racism and sexism and so on? And when does the right complain about identity politics and when does it not? So when we're talking about the white working class, well, then it's fine to talk about identity politics, right? So, you know, the reality is it's it's similar to Black Lives Matter. Yes, of course, all lives should matter, but they don't. And until they do, we have to name those that have not mattered. You know, the best example I've been able to come up with to illustrate the difference between individual bias and what happens when your group's bias is back with power is women's suffrage. Hmm. Can you imagine like not being able to name, okay, there's a whole group of people that are denied their civil rights because they are a member of this group. So can you imagine saying women need the right to vote and men saying, well, everyone should have the right to vote. Why do you have to talk about women? And, you know, it's like, (laughs) well, you do have to because these categories, they may be socially constructed, but they're real in their meaning for our lives. I have no problem identifying 
key group memberships that shape the trajectory of our lives. I think gender is an easy one. I mean, who would deny that based on your assignment at birth, the trajectory ahead of you is going to be different. You cannot avoid that. You can try, but it's so deep in society. Mm. These categories, these ideas about boys versus girls and, you know, everywhere from trying to get a happy meal at McDonald's and having to identify whether you're a boy or a girl to try to register for school without identifying if you're a boy or a girl. Come on. Right. <laughs> these categories matter. Right. And, and racial categories <laughs> certainly matter. Black folk know that and we certainly experience it. The challenges you talk about in the book are these pillars of whiteness. You use this frame pillars of whiteness to talk about the way that the unexamined beliefs that prop up our racial responses, right? Why are white people's racial responses so central to get to us getting racial justice at some point? And why do they respond the way they do? I thought you were going to say, why are white people's racial responses so irrational? <laughs> That's what I was thinking, but I figured we'd get there. <laughs> I mean, this is the great irony that that you as a black person are positioned as biased on race. When I think white people are the most biased, the most invested in not seeing racism and protecting racism and the most irrational when challenged on racism. You know, I love this quote from Lorraine Code. She's a feminist philosopher. And she says, from whose subjectivity does the ideal of objectivity come? Mm. From whose position do, do you get to claim, I'm objective, you're not? But there's not one single thing that leads to white people's response. I think there's about five different kind of key dynamics. Individualism is such a precious ideology in Western society and certainly for white people. And what individualism does is allow us all to exempt ourselves from the system we're in. Right. <laughs> and deny the power of socialization. What does individualism look like? Give me an example. Unless you know me, you can't know anything about me. And you can't generalize about me. You know, you have to know my story and how I'm different from every other white person you've ever met. Even as the very things I'm saying are telling you, yeah, no, I don't think she's different from me. <laughs> it's that I'm special and unique and I have been exempt from the forces of socialization. You know, yeah, yes, I'm special and unique. I'm also a member of key social groups, as we talked about. You know, to be a cisgendered woman is significant to your life experience, and so is your race. And we could literally predict whether you and I and our mothers were going to survive our births based on our race. Like, that's how profound it is. But individualism allows us to just exempt ourselves. Now, universalism allows us to say we speak for everybody from no particular position. I often contrast two filmmakers, like Mike Lee just makes powerful films about the human condition. And Spike Lee is a black filmmaker who makes black films about black issues. Right. So what it does when we always mark Spike Lee's race, but not Mike Lee's, is it grants Mike Lee individuality, mm. objectivity, and universality, he just speaks for the human condition. You know, Richard Dyer is a film critic who calls that the God trick. You know, this disembodied voice just proclaiming truth. But Spike Lee's truth is always partial, limited, and biased. So we're not used to having people proceed as if they could know anything about us, right? So it comes to be something we feel entitled to, entitled to you 
giving me the benefit of the doubt because you don't know me. I think probably the hardest thing for white people to admit to is internalized superiority. Nobody misses the message. And the research is clear here. Really young. We all knew it was better to be white. I mean, actually, let me ask you that. Did you know pretty young that it was better to be white? Oh, absolutely. I'll never forget, Robin. I'm almost embarrassed. I don't think I've ever said this before. I remember, and maybe it was because I was bused to a white school. I, I grew up in a very, very black, working poor neighborhood in North Philadelphia and then eventually in West Philadelphia. And I remember having these kinds of experiences. We'd get bused there. And it was a white working class school that I got bused to. So it wasn't like it was some place of white economic privilege. But even there, it felt very clear that white lives were worth more because their neighborhoods were cleaner, because their schools were better, because teachers were there. And the way we got treated as a small group of black kids up there, I very early got the message that that I wasn't worth as much. And I remember having a conversation with my mother and we were going back and forth about something. We'd have our little debates. And at some point I said I, in mid-sentence, I don't know why I said it, but I remember saying to her, I mean, come on, mom, it's obviously white people are smarter. Wow. And I never forgot that moment because of the look on her face and the look of like pain and shame that she felt and I couldn't have been more than eight or nine at the time, but I said it so matter of factly. Yeah. It was an article of faith to me that I had to spend the rest of my life unlearning. Yeah. The world but told see, me I that. learned it too. I learned it too, but in a very subliminated way. Right. Mm. You know, the research is clear here that all children really young know that and internalize that. Now the impact of that message on you versus me was very, very different. But that internalized superiority is another piece. I mean, I do, I do think there's, I'm talking about the white collective. So have your listeners breathe. Yes, I'm generalizing <laughs> about white people. We're all going to be fine. <laughs> um, there is a sense that we have what we have because we deserve it and we should have it. And we have a lot of resentment about having to share it. I mean, you can see this in the response to affirmative action. I mean, in light of our history, the the petty resentment so many white people have about affirmative action when it's barely made an impact and has almost been dismantled. Segregation is another pillar. Most white people don't have authentic relationships with black people. The majority of white people don't. And what's an authentic relationship? It's not just I have a coworker. It's not proximity. It's not I had a black roommate in college. My second cousin married a, a black person. That's why I'm not racist. You know, <laughs> I live in New York. That's why I'm not racist. I mean, all the ridiculous evidence that white people offer up for why we're not racist, most of it rests on proximity. I always ask white people, show me your wedding album. Mm. Right? I mean, that's like, I think, a testament to who's really in our lives and at our tables. So that's what I mean by authentic, like sustained, mutual, not just acquaintance or, or proximity. Right? Right. Is it possible to, ha- to not have those authentic relationships and still not be actively racist? Like, could you be an anti-racist person and not have those authentic relationships either because of where you live? Because there's, there's a white person listening right now that's going to say, yeah, I live in Iowa. There's like 12 black people. And unless I'm being intentional about cherry picking, like collecting people intentionally just because they're black then I may not have those relationships, but I'm still not racist. Yeah, well, definitely don't cherry pick that, you know, those those three (laughs) black folks that like the whole town is going to grab onto. Right. I mean, sometimes it's a matter of being willing to be inconvenienced and change our lives, to, to be able to be willing to travel a little bit and get involved in groups or faith communities that would put us in more integrated space. But absolutely, you're not going to be able to be 
less racist if you don't listen to Black people. You don't see their perspective or hear their perspective. You don't read their work, watch their films, listen to them. I don't think you can have a full understanding of the world without that. You're going to absorb the most repetitive and narrow representations. I mean, most white people get their understanding about Black people from jokes, omissions, warnings, and media. And those are all very problematic sources. So if you have nothing to challenge that because you you haven't been exposed to an alternative perspective. So, I mean, ideally it would be in, it would include relationships, but if you're not consuming the thinking, I don't see how you can. And by the way, just because you have a relationship (laughs) doesn't mean you are free of racism. Because, you know, that's, that's one of the defenses as well. Is what do you, I'm not racist. I have seven black friends. I go to their, they come to my house. Yeah, you know, I always want to just ask people, so, so tell me what are the criteria by which someone is qualified as a racist, right? That's the first thing. I mean, really, like, what are your criteria? Look, I'm married to a man. He's a cisgender white man. He's a product of patriarchy and he loves me, but him developing fond regard for me did not free him of all sexist conditioning. Mm. There are those dynamics that appear on occasion, usually when we're watching a movie together um, (laughs) and having a different take on what's going on. You know, every now and then uh, something surfaces. You're not free of your conditioning because there's fond regard. Yes, it makes a difference. I still say and do things on occasion that are hurtful to the black people in my life. Unconscious, unaware, you know, assumptions I'm making, ways that I'm engaging. So when you have those moments, right, because we all get called on the stuff. Actually, for the audience, can you just name all five pillars? You said one is. Oh, okay. So we have individualism. Yes. (laughs) Universalism. Yes. Segregation. Right internalized superiority, and then I would say um, implicit bias backed with power. That's the fifth. Okay, the implicit bias backed with power. So when we lay out these five things and we talk to white people about it, or there's a micro interaction, a moment where I'm talking to the person, like you just mentioned, a black person expresses how you've done some harm to them or have engaged in some action that reinforces racism or, or something And you talk about this in the book, your response is the story sometimes, right? Stuff happens, right? But the response to it, and so often white people are triggered, to use your language, right? They're triggered by this, and that gets to this point of racial fragility. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What is racial fragility, and how are these responses to race, racism, et cetera, so damning for us in terms of how we get to racial justice? Yeah. Okay. So most white people live in an insulated environment, right? Where we are relentlessly affirmed and validated and represented. It does not mean we don't face struggles or barriers, but we live in a society that reflects us. It's like we swim with the current. We're rarely ever out of our racial comfort zones. Most of our life, we've been warned, don't go out of your racial comfort zone. It's dangerous. As Ibram Kendi puts it so, so, concisely, we may not be the producers of racist ideology, but we've all been the consumers. So we've consumed all of this bias and anti-Blackness, and we've just never had to develop the capacity to bear the discomfort of these 
challenges. That's one piece. But also we're taught that racists are mean people. They consciously don't like people based on race and they intentionally want to hurt them. I mean, that is the average white person's definition of a racist. And it's just a guarantee for defensiveness. I mean, think about every incident of racism you've seen on a video that a white person committed, that white person is going to say, I'm not racist. Right. Even as it's the most like clearly explicit example of racism, that person will say, I'm not. And they're not lying. I mean, that's the point, right? They actually believe if you put them to a lie detector test and said, are you racist? They wouldn't come back lying. We would disagree with the assessment, but they really don't believe they're racist. Like you said, because we have this idea of the foaming at the mouth, white Southerners using the N word. Short of a white hood. And nowadays, even people wearing white hoods might even say they're not racist. Right. I mean, they're all right. <laughs> right. Right. So short of a white hood, nobody qualifies as racist. You know, you like books, Eduardo Bonilla Silva's Racism Without Racists. Right. Nobody's racist anymore, but we have racism. And so we, I don't think we can get where we need to go from that paradigm. We have to fundamentally change what we understand it means to be shaped by racism, to collude with it, to be invested in it as a white person. There's a white person who's going to say, "Okay, fine, there's stuff I do to reinforce racism. There's stuff I do that's racially problematic. But why stretch the meaning of racist to include me when you could just say, hey, Bill, you're this is wrong. But when you call me racist, it makes me feel like I'm in the same camp as the guy with the white hood and I shut down. Because right? I hear white people say all the time, I'm, I was with you till you said I was racist, and now I'm shutting down. What do you say to that person? I say it's on you to get up to date and educate yourself on why people use the terms and the language they use and how they're using them. And it's not on people who are informed and involved to accommodate and coddle your lack of awareness on this topic. I mean, I know that's bold, but It may not be strategic to say you're racist. You'll notice that I slowly build to that argument so that by the time you get there, you know what I mean. Right. I mean, for far too long, we've had to walk on eggshells, tiptoeing around the delicate sensibilities of white people. We often will use whatever excuse we can to not engage. Right. You talk about in the book, the good, bad binary. What does that mean? It's kind of an adaptation of racism post-civil rights, where, you know, prior to civil rights movement, it was pretty socially acceptable to be openly racist. Post-civil rights, not so socially acceptable. And so it kind of adapted into this simplistic idea of you're either racist or you're not. And if you're racist, you're bad. And if you're not racist, you're good. So to be a nice, well-meaning person and complicity with racism became mutually exclusive. And that just functions beautifully to have white people separate themselves. And you asked me, you know, well, why, you know, you didn't use the language pick on, but why pick on nice white progressives? Okay, well, because I think nice white progressives likely cause the most daily frustration for black people. Wow, that's powerful. That's a provocative statement. Well, I know. Talk talk to me about that. (laughs) White progressives caused the most day-to-day frustration for Black people. Not the alt-right, not the guy in the hood or the woman who's saying, you know, go back to Africa, you know, this kind of caricature yeah. of, 
But you're saying it's the white liberal, the white progressive that's caught this doing. And I am not the first person who said that. James Baldwin said that. Martin Luther King said that. Because I can only imagine running across a Richard Spencer might be a bit unsettling, right? But odds are on a daily basis, you're not running across Richard Spencer. You're in the academy, you're in the university, you're, uh, you're on MSNBC. On a daily basis, you are interacting with me, with people like me. And yet, I imagine fairly often you go home having to decide whether it's worth it to talk about that slight, that indignity, that little bit of gaslighting, that that really happened. All that stuff is happening, and that's coming from folks like me, well-intended, nice people that still are coming from a framework that I don't even know I'm coming from. I mean, the nature of an assumption is you don't know you're making it. Mm. So that concept of the white racial frame, that I'm responding to you with implicit bias, but of course, implicit means I'm not aware of it. You can help me out here. You check me if I'm misrepresenting, but... Tell me what you think when I say on a daily basis, you're feeling stuff from nice people like me, but it's harder to get your hands on. Yeah. And generally when you challenge people like me, things get worse, not better. Now, I think that that is a entirely accurate assessment of my day-to-day lived experience. I think at the level of policy, the kind of extreme foaming at the mouth racism may inform some of the more devastating and impactful parts of my life. Like people who don't believe black people are human and who are right. black people are ethical, those ideologies often inform public policy in ways that I think are more sustainable. But in terms of my day-to-day life, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I rarely, like I get called the N-word in real life very rarely. I rarely experience racial intimidation or threats. It happened much more when I was a kid, particularly when I was going to these schools, I'd get called the N-word all the time. But in everyday mm-hmm. life, that doesn't happen. But you're right. Dealing with white, and I, I work in the, in the university, as you know, so dealing with white liberal colleagues and oftentimes, quite frankly, the condescension and the kind of microaggressions in day-to-day life of white liberal colleagues can be very frustrating because like you said, they don't realize it. And the fragility piece of it for me is where it gets key. Because if I say to a white woman who's a colleague, if I respond to her in a certain way, she gets upset, she often cries, she often does this really interesting kind of reversal where suddenly I'm placed on the defensive to explain my actions and everyone's attending to her hurt feelings because I may have attempted to hold her accountable for something right. that, did, that did harm to me. Well, I don't know that we could get a better visual of white fragility and white women's tears than Amy Cooper. Mm. I mean, it's such a good visual. Like the more dignified Chris Cooper was, the more unraveled Amy Cooper became. Just really quick, for those that don't know, on Memorial Day in 2020, Christian Cooper, a black man, uh, was bird watching uh, in the park at Central Park in New York. Amy Cooper was a white woman who lives in New York, was with her dog, walking her dog without a leash. She asked her to put the dog on a leash as per the park regulations and the law. She didn't want to. They had a back and forth conversation. She threatened to call the police and she threatened to tell the police that he was threatening her life and the life of her dog, which she ultimately did tell the police. It was videotaped and it became a national story. And it was filled with all the histrionics, all the white woman tears that you just talked about. Yes. And the expectation that even though she was breaking the rules, that the entire weight of the institution would be behind her. 
And even before she calls, she tells him, I'm going to tell them uh, African-American man is threatening my life. Right. So she she knows what she's doing. I think it's a really good example of now she becomes the victim and he becomes the aggressor. And I think that's what what you're describing. I mean, students, I, I don't know what kind of courses you teach, but students in university settings um, when they're primarily white classes and, and you're addressing topics like this, it, it can be almost, I mean, I'm going to use the word brutal. Um, it, it's intense, yeah. the resistance. And it gets kind of mean. I think white people, you just have to scratch a little bit on the surface and we're not that nice <laughs> or we're not that well-meaning around race when challenged on racism. You're painting an important picture here, but the tough part is if white people, to use George Lipschitz's language, have a possessive investment in whiteness, if white people benefit from a system of white supremacy, if their success and prosperity hinges partly on unmerited power and privilege, white people don't have an investment in ending white supremacy. They don't have an investment, a material investment in ending anti-blackness, and they really don't have a material investment in responding more nicely or more favorably to being held accountable for racism. So if everything you're saying is true, how do we change anything? Well, first of all, when you change your understanding of what it means, you completely change your response. So 20 years ago, if you had told me you're being racist right now, I would have freaked out. And today, if you were to tell that to me, I would be eager to know how I was so that I could learn from that and do different. Those are like fundamentally different responses because the framework that I understand what you're saying through is different. So when we change our understanding of it, I think we actually want to know what we may be doing inadvertently that is hurtful or problematic or limiting to other people. But that's probably the number one question I get from from black folks is it's hard for you to see what our investment might be like what's in it for you guys I mean you probably want you probably see all that we have right yeah I mean I'm sure there are people that know how to make the business case I don't like the business case that's that's not what motivates me you know I'm sure we could say when you have more people at the table you have diversity of ideas and things like that but it's just aligning what you profess you believe in with your actual practice in the world. It's being in your integrity. If you truly value justice, then then I don't see how you can live with yourself not getting involved with this. And the depth of relationships, experiences, nothing has been more stimulating intellectually, psychologically, emotionally than this work for me as a white person. You know, I I was a feminist very early on. You know, as a very little girl, it was clear to me that the world was unfair for girls. But I was in my 30s before I ever thought about how I benefited from somebody else's oppression. So for me, that's the learning edge. It's easy to see the current when you swim against it. But when you swim with it, I don't think there's a richer life journey than this work. And there are rewards to it. Like what? What's a reward for a white person giving back some of this privilege being accountable, being less fragile? Oh, well, I think integrity. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Being in your integrity, having relationships you would not have had before. You know, most white people live segregated lives. And I think the deepest message of white superiority of all is that most white people go from cradle to grave with no relationships with black people and no sense that anything of value is missing from their lives. Mm. 
In fact, white people measure the value of our space. We gain value by the absence of black people. Mm, you mean like like neighborhood property values? Neighborhoods, schools, like that's racial discourse. You know, good neighborhood, bad neighborhood, good school, bad school. I mean, think how deep that is, that the absence of black people is the way that we measure the value of a space. And, and what that means is that I was never meant to know you. I was never meant to love you or have relationships with you. And I wasn't meant to see that as anything lost. That, that's so deep. And when, I re, when that really hit me, like that's where I feel it deep within myself. That's just not acceptable. That's not something I, I want to live with. That's what white supremacy looks like, that we could talk about white segregation in glowing terms. Do you think that these ideas, these, these sentiments, which have been existing for centuries, have gotten more intense in the age of Trump? That, that's a narrative that people have, right? That in the age of Trump, white supremacy has expanded, that anti-Black sentiment is, is on the rise. Is that true? Yeah, I think so. White nationalists are definitely recruiting young people through social media and kind of going deep into YouTube and things like that. There's, there's a whole body of work on how they recruit and they are growing and they're given legitimacy at the highest levels. I mean, he couldn't be any more explicit in his racism. So we can never be complacent. That's the key. We can never be complacent. You decided to write a book to help be part of the project of dismantling racism and white supremacy. Your book rests on the premise that there is white privilege and that white people are the beneficiaries of unequal power and unfair power dynamics. You write a book that sells almost record numbers. You're on the New York Times list near the top. And so suddenly the leading book in the country on race is by a white woman. And the book is about whiteness. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a hell of an irony, right? That your whole work is to help dismantle this stuff. And yet at the center of the conversation, millions of Americans are reading and talking about being white. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of conundrums in this work. So on the one hand, I'm clear that my work centers whiteness. And I would also like to believe that it decenters whiteness. Because one of the ways whiteness stays centered is by never being named or marked. And so decenter, you have to expose it. Mm. And yes, Black folks have been saying this for a long time. And, and one of the like ugh, frustrations is that white people are more open to hearing it from a white person, but by God, if they are, I'm going to use this platform. To not do that for me is to really be white. Mm. <laughs> to not use this position to break with white solidarity, to name these things, admit these things we will rarely ever name or admit, and to make it really hard for other white people to deny them, I'm going to use this position to do that. And it's a both end. And it's not a zero-sum game. There's no way my book is the only book any white person should ever read. But if it takes this book to soften the soil, I think about it as tilling the soil. If it takes this to open your eyes, well, the next step is clear. Then now begin to consume writings from Black folks. You know, I am the, uh, of the 10 top books on race, I'm the only white person. And there's lots of books that have been on that list longer than mine that are written by Black folks. So it isn't true that, that this is the only book that's being read on race, but we can't exempt ourselves from this conversation. Yeah. I mean, there is, again, there is a way I can lay it out that's harder to deny. 
There's certainly no doubt about that. (laughs) (laughs) You are a scholar by training. You have a PhD. Before you wrote this book, White Fragility, you wrote an academic article that introduced this term and this idea. So you're definitely a thoughtful scholar, but now you're writing a book for not other scholars, but for the really the world. What yeah. was that transition like going from academic writer, 12 people reading your book, if you're lucky, right. to selling a book that millions of people read? Yeah, well, it, it's exciting. I mean, I know how to write in academic speak, but I don't really enjoy it. I, I'm late to academia, so it's not something I've been trained on at a really early age, but I learned to do it. But I had written that article, White Fragility, and it went viral and it went viral outside of academia and it resonated like worldwide. I got emails from people of all races like, wow, you just put language to something that, you know, for black folks, like you put language to something that I experience it all the time. And for white folks, they saw themselves in it. Mm. and so I knew I needed to develop that, but I, I wanted it to be accessible to a more mainstream audience. And plus, academic textbooks are ridiculously expensive. <laughs> I mean, look, look how it has been accessible to so many people because I went outside of academia. In terms of process, what's the difference as a writer when you're writing a book for academia with a theoretical framework and a literature review and... When you're writing a book like this, what's your process like and how is it different? Well, it's funner, that's for sure. <laughs> you don't have to do the lit review. Well, the the one thing that over and over my editor would say to me is tell a personal story. Like, so you put your voice in it and you're not used to doing that, right? You're supposed to take your voice out of academic writing. Mm. So they like a lot of anecdotes and a lot of examples and a lot of personal narrative woven in. There's that little bit of like, we're so trained to cite everything, but there is kind of a pleasure in getting to a point where you can say, I get to say this, you know, in academia, it's like, you can't say anything unless other people said it and, you know, and then you say it, but then you have to support that you can say it, you know, it just goes on and on. And there is a place where you're like, no, I I get to put this out there. And that's nice (laughs) about writing outside of academia. And it probably straddles the line. I mean, it's not like Ijeoma Oluo's book, So You Want to Talk About Race, which is all kind of essay. So this book gets used still in academia, but also in many, many book studies and outside of academia. When did you know that this book was going to be a hit? Again, we all write trade books hoping that, you know, we hit the bestseller list. I'll say this, as an author and as a bookstore owner and as a book consultant, even the most traditional writers who say it's about the work and the craft and I just want to get the ideas, they all secretly hope that a bunch of people buy it and read it, right? (laughs) No no one hopes that their book doesn't sell, but we tend to manage our expectations, right? You know, you have sold more books than the average author. Yeah. When did you know that that you had a runaway hit or even a hit on your hands? Well, I knew it was going to be popular because there was already an audience for it because the article White Fragility was so popular. So I knew that much. But I can remember saying to my editor, no, you won't let me make a fool of myself, right? You know, you have that fear, right? Am I going to make a fool of myself putting this out there? Is this, is, can I swear on here? Is this shit? I don't know. That it debuted on the list? I don't think I expected. And then it just didn't fall off. It's incredible. I don't think I would wish fame or visibility on anybody because along (laughs) with that comes just stunning meanness. It's a very mixed bag. 
you know, we live in a, a social media moment where everyone, I don't know, it feels like there's a kind of sick joy in tearing people down. <laughs> what kind of criticism are you getting that you feel is unfair? I think to say that this book is all about um, making white people feel guilty and sit in the closet and flagellate themselves with guilt. It's a recent quote that lists all the things white people can't say anymore. I think anyone who's ever heard me, I am so clear that I am not interested in guilt. I don't even have a lot of patience for white people saying that they feel guilty. It's kind of, you need to move through that because it's not constructive. Mm -hmm. uh, we are needed in the struggle and we're not useful when we're racked with guilt. And it just functions as an excuse for inaction. So, so for people to say, you know, you just want people to feel guilty. In fundamentalist circles, there was, she is the same as white supremacists because she's saying that skin color matters. Mm. You know, that, that's ridiculous, right? Yeah, it does matter, but in a very different way than white supremacists would say it matters. What's the most fair critique that you've gotten that hit you, resonated, and made you reapproach your ideas or your work? Probably to do a better job at acknowledging the shoulders I stand on. Hmm. That while I may have coined the term white fragility, that the dynamics of white fragility have been talked about in different kinds of ways from Black writers. And just top of my head, this would be in the current time, Carol Anderson's book, White Rage, is just brilliant. A wonderful book. Oh, and now that is much more of an academic book. It's It's less accessible in that way, but it's a very strong articulation. Rennie Ito Lodge's Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Racism. She, I mean, she might as well, we might as well be put side by side and we're each talking about those dynamics from different positions. You're a reader as well. You can't be a scholar and not be a reader. What, what do you read? Mm -hmm. Okay, you ready? Paranormal Romance. Are you serious? <laughs> okay, so I gotta say that I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I can't believe I just admitted it. Paranormal romance. Now, I have to be honest. I'm a pretty wide reader. I don't read paranormal romance. So is this like, I'm imagining like dating narratives of like aliens or something? Like what is paranormal romance? <laughs> well, Twilight would be an example. Ah, okay. Okay. That's okay. I get it. <laughs> My brain went to the most bizarre and extreme uh, yeah, yeah, examples. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. what are some good paranormal romance? Well, I love Lonnie Taylor. Um, Daughter of Smoke and Bones. I love that trilogy. Mm, that's great. Yes. Do you know it? Yes. I know. I haven't read it, oh. but I know. We, we, okay. It sells in our bookstore. I love that. I'm always looking for her to write something new. So that'd probably be a great example. Okay. Before you go, I want to ask you, you're on an island. Okay. You can only bring three books with you. You're going to be, this <laughs> island. You're gonna be on this island for the rest of your life, Robin D'Angelo. So these books have to excite you, energize you, entertain you. Maybe they'll do different things. What are the three books you bring? Okay, it's interesting because, I mean, then I think if I'm on an island and I'm not interacting with people anymore, would I need to read about racial analysis? <laughs> That's true. Um, You'd no longer be white. <laughs> I love Charles W. Mills's The Racial Contract. Mm. I just drank that book down. It, it, it's just so fantastic. It's a wonderful book. I probably would bring the Harry Potter books. I mean, that would tide me over. I, yes, let's separate, you know, but the books themselves. That's a little um, bit of a cheat, but I'll let you, I'll let you bring the whole set as a, as a single Yeah, is that book. a cheat? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and what's the third? What have I read lately that I just 
Love. It doesn't have to be lately. I mean, it could be a book that, that hit you in your soul when you were 10. It could be a book that you want to, a book of poems that you want to. Well, uh, what I what, what I remember hit me in my soul when I was 10 is Wrinkle in Time. Ooh, that's good. Hit me too. Is it? Oh, oh my God. Okay. Fourth grade, I was reading it and <laughs> I, I still return to it. Oh my God. That is good. That's good. So The Racial Contract, Harry Potter, and A Wrinkle in Time. That is a heck of a combo. <laughs> We're going to have a team of, uh, of therapists and psychologists come together and unpack what that means. I know. I'm all like, ah. <laughs> Along with the paranormal was, romance. <laughs> yeah, that was like unthought through, but yep. Robin, what's your next book? Everybody's waiting. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's in the editing phase. Oh, nice. I, nice. What, what is it? It's called Niceness is Not Courageous. How Well-Meaning White Progressives Uphold Racism. Ooh, so you're doubling down on it. You're going to... I am. You are going to be... Uninvited to a lot of craft fairs and yacht parties and Bernie rallies. That's so funny. These are my people. These are my people. And we can't separate ourselves out. It's a continuum and we're on it. Hey, we're on it. And it's a fight and we're going to keep fighting for yeah. justice. And, and your work is a major intervention in that. So, Robin, thank you for the work and thank you for hanging out with me today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Coffee and Books. If you want to purchase any of the books discussed on today's episode, go to UncleBobbies.com. That's Uncle B-O-B-B-I-E-S.com. Make sure to check out all other episodes of Coffee and Books wherever you listen to your podcasts.